Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. In the run-up to this year's U.S. presidential election, the only Asia topic that appears to loom large is China. And during these days, no self-respecting U.S. politician can talk about this rising superpower without saying something disparaging. Indeed, there's hardly a businessman, legislator, or policy wonk within the Beltway who has anything positive or hopeful to say about U.S.-China relations. Maybe that's simply because there's nothing to be gained politically by doing so. Americans need to blame someone for lost jobs, climate change, and a global pandemic. Why not China? It's a communist country, after all, and Americans are fond of blaming things on communists, too. Remove yourself from this political quagmire and step outside of the U.S., and you get a more balanced, dare I say, sophisticated take on China, its role in the world, and the existential threat, if any, that it poses to a United States undergoing an identity crisis. In this episode, I turn to two of the most thoughtful commentators on U.S.-China relations, Jim McGregor and Craig Allen. Jim is Shanghai-based and a consummate China watcher, author, and a top advisor to U.S. businesses in China. Craig is D.C.-based and president of the U.S.-China Business Council. I had the pleasure of facilitating a hard-driving conversation between the two experts in a recent Get Global virtual event. In the course of this 55-minute trialogue, we covered a lot of territory, challenged one another on some of the more popular U.S.-centric characterizations of China, and contemplated prospects for a more constructive relationship between the two countries under a Biden administration. Whether you are or are not a China expert, this conversation is not to be missed. If you prefer viewing to listening, I've taken the opportunity to post the conversation on the Inside Asia YouTube channel as well. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, uh, Looking forward to this. Uh, This is uh, we're we're going to be presenting to you um, the latest and greatest on U.S.-China relations. And featured on our discussion today is Jim McGregor who's a chairman of Greater China for APCO Worldwide, although on the PDF version of the itinerary that went out today's, today's participants, your title, Jim, is Global China Chairman, which intentionally or not points to China's universal ambitions, I suspect. Um, Jim is also author of the best-selling book, One Billion Customers, Lessons from the Front Lines of Doing Business in China. He's also one of the finest storytellers I've ever encountered, and I think you'll, you'll gather that data in our conversation. Also joining us is Craig Allen. Craig is president of the U.S.-China Business Council, a former U.S. ambassador to Brunei, and a longtime diplomat. Uh, he's a key figure for the effort to further U.S.-China business relations. Um, my name is Steve Stein. I'm the founder of Inside Asia Advisors and host of the Inside Asia podcast. Uh, I also serve as director of the Asia Corporate Leadership Council based out of Singapore. Spent 32 years living and working in Asia. In the next 50 minutes or so, you're in for a treat. Uh, Jim and Craig are some of the most thoughtful and insightful commentators on U.S.-China relations with a clear and distinct emphasis on business and commerce. Um, there's not a lot of time and plenty to cover, so let's get started. And uh, I thought we might begin with two views, one from Beijing on, uh, on the one end and one from D.C. on the other to frame the current state of U.S.-China relations. And Jim, uh, let's start with you. Give us the view from Beijing. Well, first off, as you can see, I'm not in Beijing because of COVID. I'm in exile from China right now. I'm in uh, I'm in northern Minnesota, which is probably even colder than Beijing right now. Um, What's going on in China? Uh, Well, for foreign companies, um, it's a it's a challenging time. Not that it's it's ever been an easy time. Um, 
And the companies right now are um, trying to sort out um, being caught between two governments and all this stress of, the, of trade wars and sanctions and entity lists and, and um, um, all of that. But um, that doesn't mean there's not opportunities. The Chinese government has probably never been nicer to foreign companies than they are being right now because they don't want to lose them. They want to hold on to them. And so they're being quite welcoming. Um, at the same time, the, the government is hunkering down because they see it uh, a time of long-term hostility between, the, between China and America and um, um, basically the advanced economies of the West um, and, and South Korea, Japan, et cetera, the advanced economies. And so they're, they're doing something called dual circulation where um, if, you're, uh, if you're a foreign company and you have technology or know-how that China needs and wants, you're gonna have opportunities. If you can help um, uh, build and fire up the Chinese domestic consumer market, you're going to have opportunities because they want to step back and reduce their reliance on external demand and um, external supply chains. Um, you have to have both eyes open, though, when you take these opportunities because um, China has had long established policies, especially in technology, that they want to learn from the outside and then do it themselves. Um, they're not always successful with that, but you got to remember what, what, the, what the intent is. Um, but people, I was actually was on a call last night with a, a few dozen CEOs of uh, foreign companies in China, and the, they, there was new language that was coming through on this call. They were talking about um, sanction-proof supply chains um, uh, from just in time to just in case um, on your supply chains. Um, and uh, I think companies are trying to sort it out, um, but you got to remember, most of, especially here for the American companies and European companies, most of them are in China for China. They're, they're in China to manufacture for the China market. In fact, a study done by the U.S. Uh, American, what is it, the Security Co uh, Commission, uh, USCC, um, said that 85% of what the um, American companies produce in China is sold in China. Now, some supply chains are leaving, um, people that were manufacturing for the world, um, because they want to get around uh, any kind of sanctions and tariffs, but also costs were getting so high that they were eating margin to stay in China because it's so efficient with the uh, supply chains and logistics going out and the workforce, etc. So it's a, it's a fast-changing atmosphere, Steve, but that doesn't mean you can't still do business in China, and there isn't still opportunities. We'll come back to some of the politics as well at one point, um, Jim, but um, why don't we turn to Craig. Craig, from D.C., what's the perspective? Because clearly in the press we have an impression, and it's, it's not a good one. Um, what is the view from D.C. currently, and what's the anticipation under a different or the same administration? Well, our, um, our companies are all very concerned uh, and dealing with an in incredibly high level of uncertainty. Uh, and uh, one way, this is difficult to quantify, uh, but as a very imprecise uh, quantification, the Democrats in uh, the House of Representatives recently released a bill with 640 pages of uh, proposed legislation uh, that is mostly about uh, China and supply chains and technology and Chinese companies registering uh, in on the NASDAQ in New York, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The Republican House, the Republicans in the House, not to be outdone, uh, released a 160-page uh, report. 
and about many of the same subjects. Um, and I think that uh, this all happened last week, and I think it's important uh, because uh, it clearly indicates uh, that whoever, whoever is elected president is going to be uh, boxed in or uh, steered uh, by the Congress, uh, which obviously has the power of the purse, uh, but also the ability to pass laws forcing uh, the executive branch uh, to move forward. There's a lot of common commonality between the House uh, 640 pages and, and the, Repub the House Democrat 640 pages and the House Republican uh, 160 pages. And, and that is the kind of the raw material from which uh, I think that will be our regulatory environment uh, will be uh, uh, ad adopted uh, or, or adapted. Um, also, uh, we're looking at uh, Beijing, uh, and I think that, uh, 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 as Jim just indicated, uh, that Chinese are, are not in a particularly compromise-ready uh, 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 mode. Uh, I would say quite the contrary. Uh, 2021 uh, is 100th anniversary of the Communist Party, uh, very important ideologically for Xi Jinping, making it difficult for uh, him uh, to uh, show great market or capitalist motives. Also, in 2022, he needs to get reappointed, uh, I would presume, uh, further boxing him in and making him vulnerable from the, uh, from, uh, the right and the left. Um, and so I think our companies uh, are uh, concerned uh, that this uh, conflict is going to carry on, perhaps uh, in, under different terms and with different reference points uh, in, in the future. Just very briefly, I would say that within a potential Biden administration, uh, that there will be much greater emphasis on working with allies. I think Jim teed that up uh, beautifully. Um, and, um, but also, there's going to be much more emphasis uh, from trade unions, uh, from human rights advocates, uh, from climate change advocates, uh, and uh, from progressives, uh, all of whom are going to be claiming uh, uh, some of the important jobs um, uh, within the new administration. And uh, who gets those jobs? And uh, the chemistry between them and how they compromise with each other is going to be really critical uh, determining what is uh, future U.S. policies uh, with regard to China. And of course, it's a two-way street. Uh, how the Chinese uh, react to that, whether or not uh, they welcome and, and express uh, a, a, a willingness uh, to, to enter good faith negotiations, uh, will determine the fate there. Uh, hopefully, uh, we're going to get back to a place of discussion, uh, compromise, uh, and moving forward, uh, and at least on the global commons issues of climate change and um, epidemic and narcotics and anti-terrorism, uh, hopefully there is room uh, for collaboration uh, in the near term. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Great opening statements. Um, I, let's for a minute, let's come back to Xi's own economic agenda to date. It's been a lot about top-down design. Um, he's leaned on China's giant state-owned banks. He's pushed private companies, investors, and partnerships with state-owned firms. 
Uh, he's forced private companies to set up party committees, uh, doled out vast state subsidies. I mean, you know, it goes on and on. There's an element of control, command and control, uh, which is a bit of a reversal from what we saw prior to him taking over. Um, how does that bode for foreign investors moving into China or thinking about moving into China? Jim? Well, uh, what did, what did uh, she say at the party Congress? East, West, North, South, the party controls, uh, you know, controls everything. And that's also, um, you know, his you know, most recently coming up with uh, more controls for private enterprise, that uh, private enterprise is being brought into the fold um, and that they, um, they, you know, the party is going to, they're going to be functions of the party. Now you're going to have opportunities, but your opportunities not only make money, but the the business you're doing better be something that that uh, achieves uh, party objectives. Um, foreign companies are in in that same in that same place, even though they may not want to be. Uh, it's going to be more and more that way. Um, again, on the call I was on recently, it was they were talking about um, you got to find yourself a Chinese company, big brother. Um, somebody that can protect you uh, from getting on the American entity list. Um, and you may have to uh, start doing more partnerships with, with uh, Chinese companies. Um, I think it's going to get to be a tighter and tighter atmosphere to be able to be in China and, and make money. Having said that, the equation in China is always you can't not be in China. Nobody, no foreign companies getting up in the morning and saying, boy, it's going to be fun to do business in China. It's never been easy because uh, you can't not be there because it's where the growth is. And no matter what you think about the Chinese governing system, um, they are united and committed and moving ahead in all the technologies of the future and investing like hell. Um, and, you know, I'm back in the States now and uh, we're not doing that. We're yelling at each other on cable TV. Um, hopefully with some of these bills that are in Congress now, where even some of these um, conservative Republicans, uh, Rubio, Cruz, and, and Hawley, and others are, um, are coming up with industrial policies to compete with China instead of thinking we can contain China. As, uh, as Rubio uh, was quoted last year saying, um, America's got to give up on its free market fundamentalism. That you know, we quit investing in ourselves. We quit investing in in uh, um, R and D and in S and T education and things like that. So, China in the end might be doing us a bit of a favor by overreaching so much, uh, and and hopefully we'll look at it as a Sputnik moment and we'll wake up. Yeah, Jim, you raise an interesting point, which is while this American rhetoric is going on about China as the, as the dark force out there in the world today, um, Europe, Australia, Japan, Korea, they're all throwing money in and doubling down on China. I mean, there's no shortage of new trade deals, bilateral, multilateral, uh, sub-regional. Um, you, you see lots of activity. Um, it feels like the U.S. has shut itself out to some degree. Uh, Craig, how, what, what, what you, might you say about that point? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, on China's external trade negotiating environment, uh, you're, you're right, Steve, that the Chinese have been very active. Um, I would expect uh, the regional co uh, uh, cooperation economic partnership, uh, RCEP, uh, to be signed uh, in November, and that is uh, China plus ASEAN, uh, uh, Korea, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. And that to me is important for American exporters because we're going to, they're going to lower tariffs among that group of uh, 16 
excluding American exporters, um, and that will hurt us. Uh, and I very much regret that. Uh, Li Keqiang, the premier, at, uh, said uh, recently that uh, he would be interesting in looking at the CPTPP, uh, which uh, the U.S. abandoned uh, uh, two and a half years ago. I would say that uh, internally, uh, the Chinese are also moving forward very dynamically, uh, and they have a plan. Um, and uh, I think that there's good things and bad things about that plan. The good thing uh, is that China has a, a middle class of, depending on how you define it, 300 million, about the size of the US, but increasing very rapidly. So it's a really great uh, consumer goods uh, story, uh, for sure. It's uh, uh, you got to be there. Uh, it's also a good manufacturing story. It's also a good services story. Um, it's a great ag story and a great energy story. I think that uh, where the complexity lies uh, is on the uh, tech side. Um, and in uh, the dual circulation plan uh, that Jim referenced, which is, remains very vague, uh, but I think that it is clearly very much about um, uh, controlling the industries of the future, um, of uh, heavily subsidizing uh, uh, quantum uh, mechanics, AI, uh, uh, bio, uh, space, uh, autonomous driving, uh, software, etc. Um, and uh, they are going to implement those plans. And uh, in my view, uh, they uh, are not WTO compliant. And the, indeed, the idea of dual circulation uh, violates uh, the fundamental principles of the WTO, which suggests that markets should be open and an import should be treated exactly the same uh, as a domestically made product. So I think uh, the, the very name, the very fundamentals uh, uh, cause as a former trade negotiator will cause me grave concern uh, and uh, is something that we need to, to look at both with uh, multilateral institutions, uh, uh, with, with the WTO, uh, but also with uh, allies and partners uh, as we move ahead. Uh, a, a future where China dominates uh, all of the important high-tech industries is not acceptable uh, to China's trading partners. And uh, we need to be very straightforward and action-oriented uh, if we're going to ad uh, address that um, looming reality. Uh, and uh, we must do so effectively. Thank you. Has the point come and gone where our ability to pressure China to comply with WTO has passed? Uh, they're too strong, too influential, uh, too many tentacles now in the market. Um, have we missed that opportunity? Is there anything that might be done except to persuade them to uh, participate in an open and equal way? Well, let, let me take this, Jim. Uh, I, so I think that uh, our own, uh, that is the United States' approach to the WTO rules uh, has uh, been less than exemplary. Uh, and so the Chinese uh, simply point at us and say, you know, uh, who are you talking to? Uh, and, uh, uh, but that is something uh, where a next administration, either Trump II or a Biden administration, 
could take another look uh, because we, we fundamentally rely on those rules. And without those rules, those rules give us the vocabulary uh, and the structure and the ethos, uh, the, the norms uh, by which we can adjudicate our, our, our differences. And without that, it's very, very difficult. So I, I do pity the next uh, WTO director general uh, who has a very, very hard job um, keeping the WTO alive despite uh, the US-China conflict uh, and uh, both sides rather callous behavior uh, that violate their own commitments to that organization. Yeah, Craig, I'm going to push back just a little bit on you because norms as defined by, you know, a Western world primarily, a different time and place. I mean, China's just making its own decisions unilaterally about we see it differently. We see the world differently. And Jim, I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, look, okay. um, in fact, I, I, I wrote quite extensively about this a few years ago. When, um, when we went from GATT to the WTO, we went from an organization that had a group of countries that were pretty strong in managing that organization and had the power to do so to a completely democratic organization where 160 some countries all have equal vote and they all got to agree on everything. And the WTO has been pretty hopeless ever since. You get somebody like China signing on to WTO and they bring, they bring local practices international. Where the WTO rules worked for China, they enforced them vigorously. Where they didn't work for China, they just pretended like they didn't exist. So China's had a real nice time with the WTO. Um, now, the WTO needs to be reformed, and maybe it can't be. It might have to be redone from the outside. Um, but there, there's complete agreement around the world on the WTO. That, um, it's, that it's absolutely necessary and it doesn't work very well anymore. Um, and, and I think that's where countries have to come together. And that's where China can get its voice in if it wants to be part of building a new fair trade organization instead of playing around with the rules of the existing one. Um, uh, Steve, I want, can I bring up something else? Because I've been yeah, spending some time looking at this. We're looking at the U.S. and China, and um, we've got to remember how many other countries in the rest of the world is stuck between the, these two powers that are battling. And uh, there's been some really interesting Pew surveys that came out in September. And let me just pull a few numbers out. These, these surveys were of 14 advanced uh, economy, uh, people in advanced economies, about 15,000 respondents in these 14 countries. Here's some of the numbers. Um, in, in, uh, in, across these 14 countries, um, uh, 19, only 19% of the respondents said they have confidence in President Xi to do the right thing in global affairs. Um, and uh, he edged out President Trump by two points. Only 17% said um, that they had the confidence that he would do the right thing in global affairs. 34% um, had a favorable view of the U.S., only 26% um, favorable view of China. But the, the, what's interesting is this dramatic upsurge. If you look at, at China, um, the uh, negative views of China are at, at a medium was about 74%, the upsurge in the last year. Australia up by 24 points to 88, um, UK up by 19 points to 74, 13 points up in the US to 73. Um, you know, I don't want to I, I don't want to belabor that too much, but that just shows that 
both the U.S. and China and the leaders of the U.S. and China are, are looked at with great animus right now globally. Their, their reputations are in the cellar. That is very important because we get all caught up in the U.S. and China and how important we all are. Let's think about the rest of the world that's got to deal with us. And that's, that's going to come boomerang back on both countries. Well, how do we resurrect that? Or if, if you've got a Trump administration that has no belief in multilateral organizations or negotiations of any sort, um, you know, and, and if it's if it's a Trump too, what are we looking at? Are we looking at, you know, numbers that that even go even further in, term, in terms of the negative uh, uh, negative view or or is there a you know coalition that could form to basically counter these negative influences between China? In other words, Europe, Australia, uh, you know, a, a combining of other global economic interests that might do something to drive a better arrangement. What do you think? Well, I'll, I'll just quickly, and then I'll hand it over to Craig. Uh, I look at Trump too as, um, um, well, I, I'm trying not to look at Trump too, actually. But <laughs> if, we, if we have a Trump too, um, it'll be very interesting in China because he doesn't care about anything other than yeah. just getting himself reelected. Um, and, and he did care about a trade deficit, but he didn't have any knowledge on it. So he actually will could turn around and then all of a sudden China is going to be his best friend because he'll want to help business. He'll want to restore the stock market. But if he's still got Pompeo and Navarro and some of these other hardliners around him, um, who knows? But if you really look at Trump, he's the softest guy on China in his administration. Yeah. Um, you know, these other guys are taking a hard line. One phone call from Xi and he buckles at the knee and, and you know, and gets rid of sanctions on ZTE and things like that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Great. Your thoughts? So I would, uh, Jim's heard uh, me tell this story before, but I, th I think it's an important one. Uh, Joe Nye of Harvard uh, had uh, gone to visit Lee Kuan Yao, the uh, deceased now uh, president of Singapore. Uh, and uh, Joe Nye asked uh, President Lee, um, you know, about this U.S.-China thing, who's going to win? And uh, Lee Kuan Yao said, of course, America will win. And Joe Nye was a little bit confused. Uh, he said, well, why is that? Most people think China will win. And uh, Lee Kuan Yao said, no, no, no. China only has 1.4 billion people. Joe Nye was uh, confused again. He said, America only has 320 million people. How can 320 million people beat 1.4 billion? And uh, Lee Kuan Yao, uh, exasperated, said, don't you understand, if America plays America's game, the rest of the world will be with America. And uh, that, that, that will be the other 6.6 uh, billion people in, in the world. And of course, America will win if America plays America's game. If America plays America's game. That's the challenge. Uh, and uh, I think we have all of the diplomatic tools that we need to do that. We have the moral authority. We have the soft power. Uh, we have the, our network of alliances to do so. Um, but uh, we're not playing our game very well. Uh, America first and only America first is not as attractive uh, to the third countries as, as one would uh, wish. Uh, it's, uh, and uh, perhaps greater attention to our traditional allies and partners and friends around the world uh, would pay dividends. And uh, I think that that's something uh, a, a, a somewhat of a sharp contrast uh, between uh, the two parties at the current time.
do we still have the moral authority or have we forfeited that over the last four years? In other words, you know, can we get it back? Do you feel enough confidence in our institutions and, and, and the, uh, you know, the sustainability of our relationships to be able to endure this? Well, I, the question is, uh, I, I, I think that the figures uh, that Jim shared with us are uh, very important. Uh, uh, are they long-term or short-term? Uh, I will argue uh, that they are, uh, they can be resurrected, if not in full, then, then at least in, in part, uh, and that it is imperative uh, that we do so, uh, as particularly as we do face uh, uh, a challenge uh, from China that is unlike any other challenge that we've ever faced before. Uh, China has scale, right? Uh, as Stalin said, uh, uh, Quantity has a quality all of its own. Uh, and that's absolutely true. The scale of China uh, is something that the US cannot duplicate on its own. And, and therefore we need scale uh, in association with our friends, allies and partners. And, and that uh, goodwill that we've earned over the last 250 uh, years uh, is, uh, is good. Uh, we, we got a reservoir that we could draw upon uh, but we must be wise as we do so. And that is the job of the next administration. Jim, are you as optimistic? Um, I, I'll take a little bit of a different take. And I, I've been influenced by a recent foreign affairs article by a couple of academics, I don't remember their names, who make very good arguments that, um, in my words, uh, America's got to get over itself. We are no longer the, the preeminent leader in the world. We are one of many, one of a few. Um, that that the way we rebuild ourselves is actually Obama was doing this and he got pilloried for it, saying, you know, after after all the aggressiveness of, of W with the Iraq war and, and things like that, um, uh, Obama tried to go out and be more humble in the world and, and, and try to work more with coalitions. And he got hammered for it for, you know, looking weak. That's America's position. We are no longer unassailable. We had a very unique position after World War Two. We had 50 percent of global GDP. And, um, and, and, and we were not just, none of our land was destroyed like Europe and Asia was. And so we had this preeminent position. We rode that for a while, but you can't ride that forever. Um, so we need to be, we more than ever need to work with like-minded allies um, in, in, um, in, and then, and, and, and not being against China, but actually um, facing up to China and facing up to China on where its differences are. If China wants to keep its own system, well, then China can do that. But when that system goes outside of China's border and it challenges the existing order in an unfair way and in, in a pernicious way, then we have to stand up and stop it. Um, and because China does that in its own borders very well, it, it, it controls what goes on in its own borders. We've got to control what goes on in our borders when it comes to China. Yeah, and in some ways, it's a soft power, right? It's this idea of them coming in and offering up incentives, whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative or a technology advantage. I mean, the idea of Alipay moving to Africa with an electronic payment solution. I mean, the degree to which they can influence or find influence in any market in the world is just what big, great powers do. So, you know, um, you know their methods may differ from, from the United States in years past, but, but they're just 
flexing their muscle is what I see, Jim. And, and, and uh, you know, I guess at some point somebody's going to have to call them out. But, but who? Particularly if we're in a situation where the U.S. doesn't have its, uh, its same uh, global level of global status. I mean, what, what, what organization is going to create the check and balance required? Let me, uh, let me follow up a, a little quickly on that. Mm. Um, but what's going on now with, with Xi Jinping and, and putting more party control in private enterprise and, uh, um, and also the distrust? You know, wh- what about Huawei and TikTok and all that? What is that? That is distrust globally of the Chinese government. It's, mm. it's distrust on what, what they're going to do with data. It's not so much about these companies as distrust of the government behind them and what these companies will have to do if the, gov- if the government asks. So China actually has, has all these great entrepreneurs, all the venture capital that you can think of, and its companies. Are, when will China, a Chinese entrepreneur be able to build a global company? Um, they can't get outside their borders anymore. Um, they're questioned wherever they go in the world. Now, they may be able to go into, in, into some um, developing countries, but even there, the distrust is, is, is pretty high. So China's hurting itself. We have to see how this evolves. They may be feeling high and mighty now, but they're, they've made themselves um, unwelcome around the world uh, and, and really distrusted. And America's had a lot of trust for a long time that Trump's been working his best on eroding, but I think we can bring that back. Craig? Yeah, I, w- I, w- I, w- I would say that, uh, you know, China's gone uh, from about 1% of global GDP in, in 1949 uh, to about 15% of global GDP uh, today and rising uh, rapidly. And, and let's make no mistake about it. Uh, COVID-19 is, is a step change where in a relative sense, China's uh, power is going to increase significantly. And depending on what happens to the United States, uh, we, need to, we, we need to be careful. Um, but I would argue that uh, China has uh, acted in a foreign policy sense uh, as great powers act. Uh, they haven't invaded uh, anybody. Uh, their yeah. military uh, has, uh, 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 other than Vietnam uh, in 1979, and Korea in 1940, uh, uh, 49, 50, um, and their military is not moving bases. Uh, so China has really behaved as a great power normally would. Uh, and it is not destroying global um, uh, institutions or norms. Rather, it's trying to uh, it's trying to ad- adapt them to China's needs. Of course, that's what great powers do. Uh, and if that doesn't work, it's creating a, a parallel um, um, organizations like the AAIB or, or and others. Uh, this, uh, and so China is not out there wrecking the world um, uh, order at all. Uh, rather, it's supplementing and adjusting the rule order to to make it more to, to make itself more more secure. Uh, these are things that are not existential threats uh, to the United States, um, and they're things uh, that are important uh, to our interests and uh, which we must pay great attention to. Uh, we have the benefit, however, of an alliance structure that spans the globe. And more importantly, we have the benefit of 
uh, those uh, allies being super uh, motivated uh, to work with us if they look at us and perceive us to be as uh, trustworthy, uh, helpful, uh, transparent, objective, uh, and um, uh, kind, kind of um, UN or uh, oriented. And if they believe that we will continue, no one wants to fall into a Manichaean uh, choice between, oh, China and the U.S., good and bad. That, that's the worst place any uh, ally uh, or any American company <laughs> wants to be. Uh, uh, rather, we must rise above that. Uh, and uh, be true to the institutions that our fathers and our forefathers uh, and, and their forefathers uh, gave us. And certainly that's something that we could do. That is our birthright. That is our inheritance. Uh, and that is what uh, the rest of the world uh, is waiting uh, for, uh, for us to lead uh, them towards. Uh, mm. And I think that we could do that. Uh, we just, uh, it's not an American for America first context, rather it's a leadership context uh, with the rest of the world uh, for a, a world that is hungry uh, for yes. that and to a world which China has indicated a willingness to adapt. Mm. Jim, I'd like for you to, you know, reflect on that, and then I want to move on to one more subject, which is the tech rivalry. Um, well, I um, I have a little harder view than than Craig because um, I think there China has very much a China first agenda. Um, these wolf warrior diplomacy and uh, going around the world and and doing a lot of intimidation of, of countries. Um, if you don't take Huawei, the ambassador will threaten you. Um, you know, it's, there's, I think China decided, wanted to make the world safe for the Communist Party, that uh, our system is different than yours, leave us alone. Um, and then they realized, or they came to the conclusion that in order to do that, they'd have to change the way things go on outside their borders and the way people talk of them outside their borders. So it's, it's not so benign to make it safe. They got to change the world. And um, and I, th and, uh, I think they made a decision that's if you can't be, be loved, you better be feared. And, and as far as the Chinese military, um, you know, I was infantry in Vietnam. And, um, you know, you see the Chinese military, the buildup they have done in a short period of time is just unbelievable. Okay, you can say that's what a great power does. But name a great power that built up a huge military that had an, that built up a narrative of being aggrieved by the population that didn't end up using that military. That's what worries me. Germany. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to make any accusations, but if you look at, if you look at what they've done and you look at the generals that have had no opportunity to fight and, and who have every toy in the world, it's a volatile situation um, that we have to all be aware of. What, what it, I mean, it, these are, these are uh, themes which are in some ways uh, beyond our ability uh, in, in some ways. I mean, you know, governments will behave the way governments do. Um, corporations, however, uh, commercial, 
uh, engagement is the one device that we all have. And, uh, you know, many of our colleagues out there and trying to build relations with China. I do have a question here from from uh, from some of our of our of our listeners and viewers here. Uh, you know, it's, it's all well and good for large US MNCs um, that have the smarts and the resources to invest in China. What advice might you give to small private enterprises trying to enter China? Is it worth the effort or is it just uh, uh, too much to bite off? I can answer that two ways. Uh, many times I just say stay home. Um, <laughs> China is a very complicated, difficult market. It'll take a lot of your time, yeah. um, more, more time than you may be able to afford, um, you know, given that you're not a huge business. Um, and so if you're going to go in, you've got to really plan it out. You may have to look at partners. Uh, you may need to, you know, really take your time. Don't get all giddy about the China market and jump in because it, it could uh, be the death knell of your company on the amount of resources and attention it would take away from you doing your business. Great. Craig? Yeah, what, I, what I would say there is um, it, it is possible to test this out through e-commerce and uh, test your, your product uh, through uh, either Tmall or uh, through Tencent uh, Shop. Uh, and there are a couple of others. And you can put up a, a, a front in China and, and see if, uh, if, if there's good uh, take. The one thing I would say before you do that, though, is ensure that your trademark uh, is registered uh, and that uh, you um, uh, that you protect your intellectual property. Um, so it depends on what your product is, uh, uh, but it, I, I I think that the way Jim phrased it earlier is perfect. Um, if if you're able to help China, uh, if you're uh, if you're in with their if you're in sync with their plans, yeah, you could do really well in China. That's difficult to know up front, but uh, that 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 very large, uh, very rapidly growing Chinese uh, consumer middle class base is very similar in many respects to the U.S. or the European or the Japanese middle class. And if that's a market that you sell into, uh, then um, I think it's wor worth a look-see uh, uh, to see if uh, either through e-commerce or perhaps through Hong Kong, perhaps through Taiwan, uh, perhaps through Singapore, uh, if you're able to find a partnership uh, that is able to help you expand your business. Um, so uh, I, I, I take uh, Jim's uh, very um, uh, practical advice uh, to heart, uh, but I, I love that market, uh, and it's the the best rapidly growing market in the world, and they got scale, uh, and uh, so it's hard to look away. And and they'll likely roll out the red carpet if you have advanced semiconductor technology to offer. So uh, to that note, um, you know, let's talk about the rivalry that, that's emerging um, on advanced technologies, because there's been clear declarations by Xi and um, and, and that government on what they're going to do to actually invest aggressively to be not just um, followers, but leaders in machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotics. I, I recently did a podcast on automation and, and uh, two thirds of the world's robotics and manufacturing are being turned out in China. Uh, they are just not waiting for the market to catch up with them. They're leading the market in order to be as efficient uh, and, and be the future uh, manufacturing base for the world. Um, it's, it's 
impressive at, at, at any level. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And Jim, maybe, you know, your comments on, on the, your, both, both your, you know, your, any admiration you have for that, but also the concerns that you carry. And I know you have a few on that front. Well, you know, I mean, China's been playing technology catch up with the West since the uh, opium wars. Um, you know, and there's always been um, uh, every administration that comes in um, does a big science and technology plan. Uh, Mao, Mao did it, Deng did it, who and when did it with indigenous innovation. And now, and now she's doing it with Made in China 2025. But they all came, carry the same characteristic. It's about developing the, the core technologies that are important for, for, for the future. And China's, um, uh, you got to give them a lot of credit because they have a focus, they're willing to invest, they're willing to sacrifice. If something doesn't work, they do a U-turn and go the other way. Um, it's not unlike, um, you know, if you, if you look at the past of the U.S., uh, it's not unlike what we, what we did. I mean, we get back to free market fundamentalism. How did the U.S. build um, a globally um, a globally winning um, manufacturing base? It was called World War II and the War Production Board, um, where, you know, the, all manufacturing and business in China was run by a Sears executive and the government. So um, you got to give China um, uh, credit credit for that. And, and they're able to leapfrog because they don't have a lot of installed base. Um, they don't have a lot of legacy companies that, that are making money and, and are very cautious. You know, it's funny, when I talk to American boards of directors, uh, the, the question and answers that come back um, at the end of the session, 90% of the questions are about risk. They're about liability. Um, Chinese companies, that doesn't even come up. It's like, what are the opportunities? Um, uh, what what, what did a, a Chinese friend of mine said, um, uh, European companies are like um, uh, um, fossils in a museum. American companies are like animals in a zoo. Chinese companies are like predators in a jungle. You know, I mean, they're aggressive and, 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 and uh, the only way you deal with that is, is compete. Um, now, having said that, the, um, they look at this as a national security threat in being behind in technology. So they think it's fair game to hack and steal and, and do all kinds of things that are very damaging to companies across the world. And that, that is not acceptable behavior, um, despite China thinking it's part of their, their, their national security interest to do so. Do you feel that any of the bad press that they're getting or the reputation they're building um, that's, that's reflecting negatively on the China could be curtailed given the U.S.'s failing to, to, to rise in the moment and their need to be seen as more of a future leader? In other words, could they, um, I guess, uh, amend the way they've been conducting themselves uh, in order to basically gain greater credibility? Craig? Yeah, um, so I'm a former trade negotiator and uh, talk to the trade negotiators every day. Uh, and I think, Steve, that you have just articulated uh, the positive vision of the phase two negotiations uh, uh, as, as, a, as a may or, or may not uh, be. So the phase one negotiation successfully completed on January 15th of this year uh, had to do with intellectual property rights, ag and uh, financial services mostly. It's been relatively well impl implemented. Uh, the difficult issues uh, were put off 
to, to the phase two. And uh, on the negotiator's agenda are uh, subsidies, state-owned enterprises, uh, subsidies, uh, subsidies, state-owned enterprises, cyber, um, and um, tech policy. Um, and this is very difficult. But uh, as uh, your former friendly trade negotiator, uh, what my approach to this would be um, that uh, it's in China's interest to uh, converge with the global innovation ecosystem. Uh, and uh, that one of the fundamental reasons why Chinese uh, R&D is, uh, is so poor, uh, fundamental research and development is so poor, is that, is that it's so corrupt. Uh, and they need to clean that up. Uh, and uh, they need to make, uh, that's related to state-owned enterprises and subsidies, by the way. Uh, so I would argue uh, that it is in uh, the Chinese taxpayers' interest that the subsidies given by the government or the party uh, to uh, R&D and to technology should be completely open and transparent to the world. Mm. Uh, and that otherwise uh, it's corrupt. Uh, and on state-owned enterprises, um, it is in China's interest to reform those state-owned enterprises in a very, uh, very significant way. And we could start with Huawei. Uh, a good place uh, to start. Um, so, uh, at least in my view, uh, this is a really difficult agenda. Uh, and it, maybe it's an impossible agenda. But I think that we have to try. Uh, and I think that it's in China's interest uh, to uh, converge with the global innovation ecosystem rather than be predatory upon it simply because um, uh, while China has great um, uh, D of R&D, it doesn't have very good R. Uh, it doesn't have the fundamental research, uh, even though it's very good at developing. Uh, and if it's going to be cut off from that fundamental research uh, uh, because of predatory behavior, then, then China's going to pay too heavy a price. Um, China is not 10 foot tall they do not jump into their uh, genes two legs at a time. Uh, they have huge uh, potential liabilities out there and it is in their interest to converge with the rest of the, the world. And I think that uh, that's something that we should aspire to, recognizing that this is gonna be a really hard, long, difficult road uh, to walk down. And it's not binary, it's not win or lose, it's not yes or no, uh, uh, it, it's iterative, uh, uh, and we must uh, engage uh, in those arguments, uh, despite the fact that this is going to be uh, very long-term and difficult. Thanks, Craig. Um, Jim, let me ask you about retaliation. Um, in the U.S. with, uh, you know, TikTok and Huawei and others, are these attempts, are these commercial commercially or politically motivated. In other words, TikTok, wildly phenomenal application, um, you know, with all kinds of great features. And yet, you know, it just seemed, you know, it, it was dead in the water as soon as it, it you know, became uh, this idea that China is behind it and all its security capabilities. Do, do you feel fundamentally that this is part of a trend? Or is this a one-off? Is this just a tactic? 
or is it a strategy for the U.S. right now? Well, I think the large, larger picture is the U.S. feels betrayed, mm. uh, that the U.S. put a lot of goodwill into China, that um, we opened our markets, we opened our universities, um, we did all kinds of cooperation. Um, our bar associations and trade associations helped them build their legal system. We worked hard to get China into WTO. And the, the answer was not a lot of goodwill going back. It was, thank you very much. Um, and now we're gonna do it our own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, I agree with Craig, but I have a different view of it. Um, you're never gonna get China to change by beating them over the head. It's only gonna be incentives. And China would, was going to be incentivized to change by TPP. The stupidest thing we've done since evading yeah. Iraq was dropping out of TPP. Yeah. Um, because even the reformers in China wanted TPP because they wanted to reform. You know, you know, all these people didn't go to Carnegie Mellon and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Cal Polytech and whatever to be boxed into the China market. They liked being connected to the... Um, you know, Silicon Valley, etc. Um, and China, you know, China always talks win-win. Win-win in China is China wins twice. You know, China, China's um, got to get over itself and that everything is a zero-sum game. But the only way you're going to do that is when China is held away from being able to, to do things. So the administration, I think, is what they're trying to do, whether you like it or not. They're saying, wait a second, you got TikTok here. It, we look at it as a security threat because we don't trust the Chinese government. But where's Facebook? Where's, where's Google? Uh, where's WhatsApp? Where are all of the uh, – and, and where's PayPal? You know, uh, Ant Financial is going to go out. Well, PayPal has been blocked in China, despite um, uh, it was supposed to open in uh, in the early 2000s under the WTO. So uh, a lot of this is caused by Chinese behavior. Uh, I wouldn't say we have a strategy. We have an attitude and we've got some actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Listen, we have about three or four minutes left. And I'd like to see if you all would just like to wrap up with a few final thoughts. Uh, we could talk for another hour on this and we've only scraped the surface. But, uh, Craig, would you like to just, uh, you know, a few final comments for, for the, well, for the let gallery? Me, let, let, let me uh, uh, comment on uh, the WeChat and uh, TikTok. Yeah. Um, I think that the legal rationale behind uh, the so-called ban, by the way, you could you could download it today, um, so it's not a very effective ban, uh, but is that um, there was a lot of uh, PII or personally identifiable information that was being transferred to a Chinese company, which the Chinese company would have uh, no choice but if asked by the Chinese government to, to turn over. And I think that that's a, a, a legitimate concern uh, by the U.S. government. But the problem is that we have no uh, data uh, policies uh, either in the US or in China uh, that we could rely upon. Now, the Europeans have GDPR, uh, which I think is a step in the right direction. Uh, And we really, uh, data and particularly personally identifiable data is a a new area of trade uh, policy craft where we need uh, a regulatory structure uh, uh, pronto, um, and a lot of work needs to be done there. Uh, and, and the United States needs to get its own house in order domestically uh, first to get get us there. So I'll stop there. Thank you. My final comments in this session would be that we've been talking geopolitics, we've been talking technology policy, we've been talking trade policy. 
Um, let's just make sure that Chinese people do not get caught up in this, that, um, the, that the racism we're seeing in this country against Chinese people uh, because of this is horrifying and it's got to stop. Um, these are good citizens. We want more Chinese people to move to this country. Um, uh, you know, I, I think we could use a few million more Chinese people. We want to fix our economy, get a few million more Chinese people in this country. Great note to stop on. Jim, Craig, thank you so much for your time. Fantastic conversation. Have a great day. That was my conversation with Jim McGregor, chairman of Greater China for APCO Worldwide, and Craig Allen, president of the U.S.-China Business Council. If the conversation revealed one thing, it's that China is still open for business, and not to be in China is to forego an opportunity in one of the great market growth stories of the 21st century. Is it easy to do business in China? No. Are there continued concerns about setting up operations there? You bet. Is there anything the U.S. can do to curtail China's growth and global ambitions? Not a chance. The country is well on its way to becoming a force in the world, whether the rest of humanity likes it or not. But what kind of world would that be? There are legitimate concerns from D.C. to London and beyond that China wants to play a new kind of game where the rules of free market trade, human rights, and political influence are filtered and recast with distinct Chinese characteristics. The greater China's influence, the higher the probability that their rules will apply, whether through a process of persuasion or through sheer might. So what's to be done? Well, from a U.S. perspective, according to Jim, getting our own house in order and stepping up and competing is one way. It beats trying to contain and control a China that can't be contained and controlled. All the finger-pointing in the world won't bring China into line with Western commercial practices. A better approach, suggests Craig, is to help China see that it's in its own best interest to be more conciliatory. The country got to where it is today through the tight and centrally defined policies that set China on its course to modernization. Take one look at the U.S. today, and it's easy to understand how China might see how their system compares favorably to a democratic system mired in a cult of personality politics. Unless and until that situation improves, it's easy to see why Xi and the Politburo would stay the course, showcasing its model to the world as a viable alternative. From a governing perspective, authoritarianism has its advantages. And let's admit it, democracies, well, they can be messy. How we engage as distinct countries with unique political orders is the real question. Trade and commerce, by definition, are a two-way affair. The Trump administration hasn't missed a chance to tarnish China's reputation, even going so far as to directly blame the communist power for many of America's central problems. Lost jobs, falling productivity, poor manufacturing, and of course, the pandemic. What China's missing, says Craig, is the chance to, and I quote, converge with the global trade and innovation ecosystem, end quote. Any gesture by Xi and his government to demonstrate that it's prepared to play by commercial rules that are mutually beneficial could go a long way in righting the many wrongs. On this point, both Jim and Craig are agreed. Both countries, you might argue, need to get over themselves. The U.S. needs to stop seeing itself as the dominant geopolitical force that it once was and reconcile with the fact that China can no longer be contained. While China, on the other hand, needs to see that its commercial and political behaviors are not reflecting well on them. The world is watching, and whether it's the mass incarceration of Uyghurs in its westernmost province, or failure to agree to reciprocal trade and investment agreements, becoming a superpower means acting like one. 
That brings us to the end of this episode. My thanks to Get Global for permission to repurpose my discussion for Inside Asia's listeners. My conversation with Jim and Craig was just one of many earlier this month. The event featured experts spanning the globe. Want to learn more? Visit Get Global at www.getglobal.co. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.